Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greeting this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Today, as we gather on this beautiful day, a day where God has called us away from our toils and our labors to focus on Him, we know that we live in a world scarred with sin and misery. Sin's dark clouds hover over us time and again, but as that song that Luke wrote, says, behind those clouds, the sun still shines. In Revelation chapter 22, the Spirit showed us that things are not always going to be the way they are now. Now, death seems to show its face again and again, and the stains of sin seem to cover the world red. But it will not always be so. In Revelation 22, John said that God showed him a pure river of the water of life, crystal clear, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street and on either side of the river, there was a a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Bible says in that day, it says this in Revelation 22, 3, it said, there shall be no more curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and His servant shall serve Him. Folks, God is bringing this day closer each time we gather. Can we say thanks be to God? Oh God, lead us to the fountains of living water. And oh God, make us fountains of living water. Let us pray. Lord, we come to You today, Lord. We come longing to see Your face. We come longing to hear Your voice and to be fed from heaven. And Lord, I pray, Lord God, as we gather today in Your presence, O Lord, that You would meet with us and do these things, that You would forgive our sins, Lord, that You would heal our land, and Lord, You would use us to bring about these changes in the world that need to come as your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray this day, O Lord, that today is a day that brings forth change in our lives. Amen.
remain standing with me for just a little bit longer as we go to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 for our text. As I preach about fountains of the Spirit. John seven thirty seven. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let us pray. Lord, we pray today that we would be filled with your Spirit. Lord, that you would live in us and through us to heal the nations. And Lord, we pray today that we would understand these words and this narrative from John chapter 7, that we would hear your voice and that you would speak to us on how indeed we can be a part of that work. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. You may be seated. What incredible imagery given to us by our Lord here. Can, can you picture this? He pictures that a well, a, a fountain, a river, that he is this, that people can come to him and drink. And he said those that believe on him will be the same. They will be like a person with rivers flowing out of their belly. Tim was telling me there's actually a mural uh, somewhere in Westerville. A church has that has something to do with this. I'd like to see it. But... This picture of this river of life flowing out. What could it all mean though? And and what does it call us back to? And what does it call us to think about? Jesus had been teaching and reasoning with the leaders of the Jews. And now he goes beyond just reasoning and teaching. And he begins to cry. He begins to uh, emotionally cry out. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And as I was reading this, I thought, well, maybe I'm getting a little too carried away. Maybe the scripture, you know, it says cried. It just means he was a little louder than normal. And so I looked it up, Bill. I said, you know, when it says Jesus cried, what what exactly does it mean? And when I looked it up, it seems as though I probably was wanting to under-exaggerate it. Because the word here, the, the Hebrew word comes from the word to scream, to cry out with deep emotion. And it comes from the word of the call of the raven and the call of the raven. Ravens do not sing. They scream. Have you ever heard of black? Have you ever heard of the raven? As it calls out, it's not singing a melodious tune. It is crying out. And Jesus here is crying out. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, if Jesus screamed with deep emotion these words, then maybe we should understand what they mean. Maybe we should listen to what he has to say. And maybe we should uh, let deep call unto deep and say, Lord, what is it that you wanted us to know? 
As I sought to understand better what this could mean, my studies took me all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God created men. And, and I found something I really wasn't looking for. And, uh, you know, part of it, you know how you can have something in your mind already? You're like, okay, I got this, you know, I'm going to go. And, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, but wow, that's right there. And ooh, that's right there. Well, I'll never be able to preach all of that. I mean, now you've opened up an entirely different thing than I had anticipated. So as I sought to understand what it could mean, I went back to the garden where man had, before, uh, before he had been sentenced to death and before the earth was, was cursed. When God created man from the dust of the earth, the scripture tells us that he was brought forth to life when God breathed into him the spirit. Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We know that after he sinned, he's considered dead, even though he's still alive. But right now, as the Spirit of God has breathed into him, he becomes a living soul. Now, interestingly enough, as I began to read the account of his creation, it seemed very, very uh, strange to me, uh, coincidental, providential, certainly not coincidental, uh, that in the word of God, in the creation of man, that before and after his creation, God tells us about water. And I think it's kind of neat. And I'll read it for you here from Genesis 2. It gives us some interesting details about the creation that seem to connect to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 7. As we read, note the addition to God telling us about the creation of man. He tells us about two ways God sustained life on earth. One was a mist of water that came from the earth, and the second was a great river that flowed from the garden. And Tim, to me, this was really compelling. It was really interesting because Jesus is talking about what? Rivers of living water flowing out of our belly. So where did this ever happen again? Boom, it happened. Where did the river, where did this living water come out that watered the garden? Here we read it. Genesis 2, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Every plant of the field was before it, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain. Everybody say, He had not caused it to rain. Isn't it amazing? He's telling us about the creation of the world, and then He stops and goes, you know, it hadn't rained yet. And the way that everything, I mean, we know everything needs water to live, right? If it didn't rain, what would we'd be in serious trouble, Right? And God says, well, he hadn't caused it to rain yet. There was not a man to till the ground. Of all the things God could have included in this narrative, information about rain uh, not coming down, but it coming up instead out of the earth. This is a pretty interesting point. Verse 6, there went up a mist from the earth that watered the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So right after he creates man, before he creates man, he talks about the mist that comes up and waters the ground. After he creates man in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden. And there he put in the man whom he had formed. What does he say? Out of the ground he made the Lord to grow every herb and tree that is pleasant to sight, good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden. Everybody say the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the the garden. And thence it was parted and became into four heads. So when we read about it, it's a river. But then he defines it's not just a river, it's rivers. 
And living water, just so you know, it, it's not any more complicated than water that's moving. Water that is part of a stream or a river. It's not a pond. It's not a lake. It's not Deer Creek. It's a living water that's moving. There are people that argue that when we're baptized, we need to be baptized in living water, water that's moving. That's why they go down to the creek. They go down to a river and they go there because they believe that that's what you need to do. You've got to have some living water. Now, this is all very interesting, and I'm not sure I understand wholly what it's all about, but it seems to me connected to what Jesus is crying out from the depths of his uh, person there in John chapter 7. Man made in the image of God, made alive by the Spirit of God, God's breath. He quenched the thirst of the earth and all of life on it from a daily mist and a great river that came out of the Garden of Eden, a river that split into rivers, rivers of living water indeed. After man's sin, he was expelled from the garden and death came on all the earth and God later judged the earth with rain. Water from above that brought flood. So remember the first time that it rains on the earth, it's not like, uh, it wouldn't be like it would be for farmers today. It was the first time they had seen water falling from the sky. And as water came from the sky and the dark clouds came, they knew this was the judgment of God and it was terrifying because that rain did not bring anything happy for anybody on the earth, but it did bring the waters of salvation which lifted Noah up from the destruction and the judgment and saved him. And so God uses this great symbol of water as he does in baptism. The Bible talks about the earth being baptized. And uh, even when the children of Israel go through the Red Sea, how they were baptized by the sea. God later judged the earth with rain, water brought from above. Since that day, rain has brought good and evil, life and death that rained down on the earth. Good for our crops to give us water to drink, evil as floods wash men away to their deaths and their property. But then something happened later on in the story of the earth. And we heard about it just now from Acts chapter 2. And it's been described in the Old Testament as the former and the latter rain together. On Pentecost, the former and the latter rain together. Instead of bringing God's wrath and judgment, the rain began restoring the world. It began watering a new world built on perfect obedience to God by Jesus. The second Adam would lead a new race to the tree of life. Life flows from the bride of Christ. She will be the fountain of life to restore and take dominion of the world through this new and holy race. You see, it was the kingdom of God that was the passionate cry of our Lord. And it is the herald uh, of, of the kingdom of God that he set out to be. He was saying the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. And it's coming through me. And no longer would it have to come down. But it would be restored to the garden where water comes up. And water comes out. Isn't that kind of neat? Isn't that neat imagery? All right. So we go... Week after week, as we have been going through the life of Jesus, we've been spending most of our time in the Gospels covering the stories contained in the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, here we take our text from the book of John, which does not often repeat stories uh, that are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there are these long discourses. And they're very hard to teach through because we only have so much time. Uh, Derek, there's like 60, 70 verses that is kind of a complete thought by our Lord. And so you could dissect it into a bunch of little parts, but Jesus is trying to say something in hold. 
So dissecting it into little parts, I really think would not do it justice. And I don't know if we're going to be able to go through 60 verses. You guys ready to go through 60 verses? I don't think so. But, but so what we're doing though, is we're, we're seeing this as a whole, what Christ is teaching here as we take our text from John, uh, John not only tells us things we don't see anywhere else about the life, but he takes these expansive, detailed opportunities to flesh out the teachings of our Lord. John 7 and John 8, these very long chapters, show us plainly Jesus is declaring his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. The blind Pharisees are unable to see him and hear him. He cries out as if somehow, like we do when we speak to a deaf person, we think, maybe if I talk louder, maybe they'll hear me, but they can't. You know, and someone who's blind. Well, maybe if I wave in their face, well, they still can't see you. They're blind. And Christ is accentuating their deafness and their blindness by crying out. And as he cries out the truth to them, they still can't hear it because they're not hard of hearing, Steve. They're deaf. And so John 7 is showing this clearly. He teaches us why, even though they had words and miracles For generations as God's people, they were still not His children. They are the children of their father, the devil. And you will hear Jesus say this over and over and over again in these two chapters. Because you see, you know what they're trying to do? They are trying to kill Him. And we're going to get into this when I get back. Uh, We're going to get into the fact that they keep, they're trying to kill Jesus. And they're, they're, they're sending people to take him, Stephen, to haul him off and to be executed over and over. And Jesus is going, why are you doing this? Have I sinned? Have I done anything wrong? Have I broken any of the laws? Why are you doing this? If you were God's children, you wouldn't do this. And they would say, oh, well, we are God's children. And he would say, well, if you are, then what are you trying to kill me for? Because I've violated nothing in the law. And this goes back and forth. And it leads us to the story of the woman who is caught in adultery. And people think that that story is about the woman being called in adultery. But the story is about how that they were intent on killing him, even though he had done nothing. And there were no witnesses that he had done anything wrong. In fact, the witnesses were that he had not. The witnesses of his miracles, the witness of his word, the witness of the Father's voice from heaven. All of these were witnesses on his account. And legally, there were no witnesses to condemn him. Yet they still wanted to kill him. Now, we'll see how far we get. And you can tell I'm a little cranked up today. But Jesus was going to the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody say the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was also known as the Feast of Booths. Do you guys remember about this? I taught you guys about this a year or two ago. They did something that might be interesting, might be interesting for us to do sometime. They would go and they would leave the comfort of their homes for a week. And they would build these booths and they would live in them. And it would remind them that things were not always so good. They didn't always have palaces. They didn't always have the great temple. They didn't always have the the, the luxuries. They didn't always have air conditioning and running water, you know. And they would go and they would live in these tents. That's what the Feast of Booths is about. It's not like they had a, you know, if we had a Feast of Booths, we'd have a bunch of booths where you bought stuff at, right? But they were living in the booths, okay? And living in the booths, they were reminded that they were once wanderers and that they didn't have cities and that they were living in tents, okay? 
So they would come together. This is a solemn feast of the Lord brought in Leviticus. And during this feast, some pretty interesting things happen. And we'll get to that in a second. Okay. So John uh, 7, 2, Jesus. Now the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore sent to him, depart to go to Judea. The disciples may see your works. He's calling, hey, you need to come and come to this feast. And Jesus says, I'm not coming to the feast right now. You guys go. Now, this is part of what we were talking about last week. It was time for them to grow up. They were going to go from helplessness to faith, right? And so he was sending them on. They were going to have to go deal with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were going to go on their own. Jesus was going to stay alone and leave them so that they could learn to be men of faith on their own. But he said, it's not time for me to come yet, okay? So, uh, verse 4, there's no man that does anything in secret. He of himself seeketh... uh, uh, seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And it tells us at this time, his own brothers in his own family did not even believe in him that he was the Messiah. Wouldn't this be kind of rough? You know, verse five, neither did his brethren believe in him. Verse six, Jesus said, my time's not yet come, but your time has already come. Go on. And so they go ahead and they go to the feast. The world cannot hate you. And he, he explains some things about them. Uh, go up to the feast. It's not ready for me to go. Verse 11 of, of John chapter 7, the Jews sought him at the feast. This seeking him, everybody say they were trying to kill him. Yeah, they were looking to arrest him. They were like, you know, bounty hunters. They were like, if we can find him, if we can catch him, we're going to haul him off and kill him. And over and over and over, they keep sending people to catch him. Okay. Uh, there was much murdering among the people concerning him. For some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, because they knew what the Jews were getting ready to do. So this goes on throughout chapter 7, and there's all this arguing and, and talking and objections. And Jesus uh, sends them, but then he comes. And uh, Jesus finally shows up at the feast, and he gets here at the end. Now this feast is a seven-day feast. And Jesus arrives in the feast and where he, when he arrives there, he begins to answer their questions because every time he asserts himself as the Messiah, they have an objection. Okay. First objection is in verse 15. Well, how can this man know anything? How can he know letters? He's never learned. They're like, he didn't get his seminary degree. You know, he doesn't have his Harvard business law degree. He's not anybody. How can he lead the people? Okay. Okay. Jesus answered and said, well, my doctrine is not mine, but it's him that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know this doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks his own glory, his glory that sent me, the same is true. No unrighteousness in him. Did Moses not give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. And then he asked them, why are you trying to kill me? Everybody say, why are you trying to kill me? I mean, it's one thing to disagree with somebody. It's another thing to want to kill them because of it, right? Uh, We believe in our country of free speech and you get to say your opinion. Well, there were people talking about all kinds of things. We read about uh, all kinds of people getting up and asserting all things. But he would say something and the next thing you know, they want to kill him. He's not telling them anything that they couldn't find in the Bible. But every time he opens his mouth, they want to kill him. The people answered and said, well, we want to kill you because you have a devil. That's why we want to kill you. And so this was their objection. He's demon possessed. So here you have the son of God, the Messiah sent from God. He's speaking the word of God from the scriptures very plainly. And instead of hearing him, the words that he's saying, they think he's got a devil. 
How many of you have met people and you try to speak the truth to them and, and you try to share and they, they, it's not that they're just not interested. They hate you when you do it. Anybody experience this? I've experienced it. It's not like you can just tell them what's right. They, they hate it and they hate you because that's what people do. They, the, the, the scripture says that for them, the words that are beautiful in life for you are them to death. They, they don't like these words. Jesus said unto them, I have done one, I have done one work and you marvel. Moses gave you circumcision, not because of Moses, but your fathers. And you, you sat, you circumcise on the Sabbath. I heal on the Sabbath. You circumcise on the Sabbath. Can't you even reason here that I'm not doing anything wrong on the Sabbath? He's trying to show them, but no matter all of his arguments, Benita, you know, and we want to learn arguments, right? We want to be able to overcome. We want to be reasonable about our faith. But it didn't really matter what his arguments were. He's showing them plainly. Hey, you guys are sacrificing. On, uh, you guys are uh, circumcising on the Sabbath day over and over and over again. And you're not. No one's saying you're sinning for doing that. I heal on the Sabbath and you want to kill me. Jesus says, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. He's calling them. And we would take this completely out of context. We'd say, God doesn't care how things look and whatever God knows your heart. He's saying, you are not judging according to God's word. God's word doesn't say go kill somebody because you think they might have something wrong. It doesn't say to do that. You people are not judging righteously. You're not doing it according to the law. If I've done something wrong, let's get some witnesses. If I've done something wrong, show me where I've done wrong. And Jesus is reasoning with them. You'll see that his reasoning does no good. The good that it does is it shows us that no reason was good enough for them, no matter what. Some of the Jews said, is this he not whom the Jews seek to kill? So then they have another objection. Well, you know, he speaks boldly. They say nothing about it. Do the rulers indeed know that he's Christ? Do the rulers think he is? I mean, if the rulers think he is, maybe he is. But the people are arguing. The rulers don't think he is, so he's probably not. Verse 27, we know him, but, but doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that no man will know who he is? Doesn't it say that? So they're arguing from their scriptures that we know who he is, but the Bible says we won't know. Now their argument is dumb and it's not from the scriptures, but it doesn't matter. It sounds good. And so they're talking it. So then Jesus is now becoming passionate in verse 28. Jesus cried in the temple as he taught. He's, he's, he's pounding the pulpit. He's crying out from his soul. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. I'm the one you've waited on. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And it's kind of like knocking, 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 knocking on the door. And everyone keeps looking out the window. Is nobody here? No one's coming, huh? I guess no one's here. But there's a guy at the door pounding on the door, pounding on the door. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And they can't even hear it. They look out. Well, I guess he's not here. He cried in the temple as he taught. You see me. You know me. You know who I am. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me, which is true. I know him. I am from him. He hath sent me. He is pleading with them. I am the Messiah. Haven't you ever talked to someone and pleaded with them to follow the Lord? Their life's in misery and woe and ruin and difficulty. And you're like, turn away from these things. These things only bring death. They only bring destruction. They only bring misery. Stop it. And they go, why are you trying to control me? 
Why are you trying to judge me? And you're like pleading with them. And you're like, no, stop. Don't you understand that all that lies ahead for you is misery and woe and difficulty and separation from uh, meaningful relationships and a life that's empty and void of all. And they're going, why are you trying to destroy my fun? Why are you trying to rain on my party? Why do you think you're better than me? And you're going, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. And that's what Jesus was doing here. Verse 30, they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Many more people believed on him. Some believed, but then others said, well, when Christ cometh, he, won't he do more miracles than this? Could you imagine Jesus had raised people from the dead? He'd healed a woman with an issue of blood that spent all that time. He had raised, he had cast the demon just now out of the, the deaf and dumb demon out of the boy over and over. He had healed the blind. He had gone to place after place. He had turned the water. He had done all these miracles in their presence. And they go, you know, we thought that when Messiah comes, he'll do even more miracles than this. Guys, if you can't read this and you can't see that what the, what the Word of God is showing us is that it didn't matter how many miracles He did. They couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it. They wouldn't because they were not of God. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured the things and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they went to take Him again. Jesus said, yet a little while, I'll go. You want me, to, you want me dead, don't you? That'll happen. And where I go, you're not going to be able to go. Yet a little while. Verse 34, you seek me, you're not going to find me. Where I'm going to go, you can't go. Then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go where we shall not find him? What manner of saying is it? So now we get to our text. Jesus is now pleading with them one more time. In the last day, everybody say the last day. The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried. Can you imagine the Messiah pleading to the people to accept Him? Pleading. Come on, guys! I'm here! You've been waiting for thousands of years. You've been doing all of these things. You've been learning all about me. You've been preparing. You've been building cities. You've been fighting your enemies. This should be the greatest day ever. I am here. He stands and he cries. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. For as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, folks. When Jesus says something, not only should we pay attention to the words that he says, but we should pay attention to where he is. Everybody say where he is when he says it. And what's going on at this time. Okay. So. When he says it and where he says it. All right. Jesus was in the temple. Everybody say Jesus was in the temple. Now, during the Feast of Tabernacles, now come on, I know it's warm, you gotta wake up. Some of you gotta wake up, all right? Jesus was in the temple, and you know what they did during the Feast of Tabernacles besides build these booths? They did something pretty neat, all right? In the Feast of Tabernacles, what they did was they went down to a place called the Pool of Silo. Now, you guys don't know your Jerusalem geography or your Bible history good enough probably to even have any idea what the significance of this is, all right? But the Pool of Silo was the only source of water in the city of Jerusalem. It was built in the 8th century B.C. by King Hezekiah. 
They go to the spring, Luke, you might find this interesting, called the Virgin Spring, okay? And they dig a 2,000-foot channel through the rock from the spring all the way into the city. And there's a source of water, and that is called the Pool of Siloam. Everybody say the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of the Messiah, okay? And they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which was the, so they could be besieged by their enemies and they could just live in there and drink in the pool of Siloam every day and laugh at their enemies outside. And so they called this the pool of the Messiah, the Savior, and it typified the fact that no matter what anybody did, they didn't need anything from outside, that everything they needed would come from the inside and that this water from the pool of Siloam represented the, the, the beauty of the fountain of God quenching their thirst. Are you, start, are you starting to get with me now? And so... They would go down and they would take things from the temple, these holy uh, articles from the temple, and they would fill with water from the pool of Siloam every single day, Tim. And then they would come into the temple in a big procession. Everyone would get excited. And they would would pour the water over the altar. And this is what they did for seven days. It was the highlight of the day. Yes, everyone lived in booths and and this feast went on and they were eating all kinds of food and they were excited. And it was kind of like brush arbor days, you know, tent revival days or whatever it was, right? But they would come. Now, the Bible declared this a solemn feast for seven days. And it ended on the seventh day. And on the eighth day, there was a feast that was all of its own called the eighth day feast. Everybody say eighth day feast. You see, the... the, the, uh, I'm going to have to summarize here before you guys all pass out on me. All right. The Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate... Andy's teaching us about the fact that we are, uh, we are justified, right? But then what else are we? We are adopted. And not only we are adopted, but we are sanctified, right? So God is saving us from something, and He's saving us to something. The Jews had a group of feasts, and I won't go into all of them. The, the first one was the Feast of Atonement celebrating the fact that they had been saved from their sins. And the next feast was what? It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was reminding them that they were now in the promised land. So God only not only saves us from our sins, but He saves us to what? Everybody say, the kingdom of God. Which is not just God isn't going to hold our sins against us, but He's going to use us to heal the whole world and to change it and conquer sin and death right here on the earth. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. And so Jesus was celebrating the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom that was coming. And they were bringing the water from the pool of Siloam. They were bringing water from the Messiah pool, water from the Messiah pool. And on the last day, when the water stopped coming and the next day, there's no water brought. Do you know why they don't bring water on day eight? Because there won't need to be any more water brought from the Messiah pool. Because the Messiah will be there. So Jesus says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And so Jesus is asserting very passionately on this day, on this day when the last water from the pool was ever going to come. And he's coming to say, as he had said before, Not only am I the bread of life, but I am the water of from the well of salvation. Do you know what they would do as they, as they would bring the water? They would quote from Isaiah 12, which they read for you today. They would say, behold, God is my salvation, right? He says, therefore with joy shall we draw water out of the 
wells of salvation. During this time, as they would pour, Christina, when they would pour the water over during these seven days, they were quoting from this thing called the Haliel, which is a group of Psalms from Psalm uh, 113 to 118. Let me me look real quick here to make sure I'm getting this right about the, the number of Psalms here. Psalm 113 to 118. And if you read these psalms, if you, if you want to get cranked up about the coming of the kingdom, just read the Halio. It's a group. They would quote them, the children of Israel, as they were bringing the water. You know, it says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be praised. And that's not talking about from morning till night. What he's saying is from the east to the west, all across the world, from sea to shining sea, God's word will be proclaimed. People will know his truth from the sea to shining sea from the east to the west from the rising of the sun they begin to talk about no more people will be worshiping idols no more people will be speaking to these dumb idols that can't answer their prayers but god will be there and he will wipe away and and you read these songs like wow 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 and they're reading it and they're reading and they've been quoting it quoting and quoting and they've been pouring the water and they get to this day and jesus lets them know he's the water even with this passionate imagery before their eyes and explaining to them, not only am I who you can come to to drink from, but you who believe on me can be the fountain of rivers of living water. And even with all that passion, and even with all that imagery, and even with all that stuff in the context there, guess what, Tim? They think, well, maybe we should kill him. Maybe, it's not, maybe now we should kill him now. The Bible teaches us that not only has Christ come to save the world, but He's going to do it through you and me. We come to dry parched earth and we look at it and we lament and we're like well when's god going to do something about that well you're here just like the disciples they were hey we we can't do this and we can't do that jesus says i'm going to die and when i after i die i won't be here to do this for you and so when christ came and we go to the book of acts the rain comes down and then the people begin to be fountains They began to speak the word of God. The Bible says one plants, one waters. But God gives the increase. God calls us to open up our mouths and declare the glory of God. He calls us to, like rivers, to rush out, to water the new world that God is making. That's who we are. Out of our bellies flow rivers of living water. That river of living water, the scripture says, is the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit isn't about running around church buildings. To be filled with the Spirit is not to be, you know, having enough faith for a Rolls Royce. To be filled with the Spirit is to be a river of living water that flows out and touches people. And I'll tell you what, you know, I think I saw a picture of the Brownfields Garden. What would happen if no water was in that garden, Jeff, Amy? you got to have water. We get these little plants, you know, and Andrea likes these plants, but we get busy. 
And all you got to do is not water those plants and they're dry and they're dead. I'm like, honey, you know, let's just buy them all new every day. Let's so we'll have pretty flowers, you know. Can't do that. You got it, but you can water them, can't you? And this is the work of the kingdom of God. It is watering. You know, it is no wonder that God uses water instead of uh, blood to be the symbol of this coming kingdom. God ordained that before a child is brought into the world, what comes first, guys? Water. And then comes this baby, and this baby then is, you know, breathes in like Adam did in the garden. Into his nostrils, the breath of God becomes a living soul. And so today, we're going to bring the water out. And we're going to bring little Ezra Mark and little Melody. And they're going to come. And as the water comes, we will remember today that the rivers of living water can flow from us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that not only have You saved us from sin and have You atoned for our sins, but You saved us to a lively hope. Lord, all around us we see death and destruction and difficulty and misery and woe. But Lord, may we look to You today not only to come and quench our thirst, but to remember that once Your Spirit indwells us, that we can be the instrument of healing the nations, that we can water the garden that You are making this world to be. Oh Lord, please do this in us and through us. May we touch them. May we water them. May that be our lives. As we lose our lives, oh God, as that water, Lord, let your spirit flow in us and out of us and through us and to others. Oh, let our lives be like that, oh God. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.